Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 35 for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 9, Project Daedalus. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel Mastin, and oof, duh. I know. <laughs> Sabriel, do you need a hug? Oh my god, that episode. Oh. <laughs> Can we break the chain of command just a little bit and just provide some comfort? Oh my gosh. Yeah, right? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, too bad we don't have counselors on ships anymore. Or yet. One day we'll invent that. <laughs> Someday. I guess they haven't discovered Betazoid yet. Maybe the next generation will have discovered such technology. Wouldn't that be a voyage? <laughs> wow. So Project Daedalus, this was such an emotional episode that we're going to try something a little different and just skip the TLDR because if you are listening to Transporter Lock, you have probably seen this episode of Discovery. And so we just want to offer some first impressions. Where do we begin? Probably not at the end, but what did you think of this episode overall, Sabriel? I had a lot of fun with it. I, I just thought it was a, oh my God, it was another gut punch. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of feels. And I, the overall art feeling is like, oh, they did something with a background character that a lot of shows would have had difficulty doing, uh, actually making us feel for her. Yeah, this I, I too experienced all the feels, especially for Arium. Just that opening shot, which was a memory of, her and her husband walking on the beach, I found that really gripping because the very first characters we saw were characters we'd never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ariam's been one of those cool characters. Like for a season and a half, we'll be like, we've been like, who is this? What do we know about them? What are they? And we get all our answers. And then the end of the character in one episode, like, oh. Yeah. In, in some ways, even though, as you said, we've been seeing her for a season and a half, it was also a relatively short arc because we didn't know until this very episode that she's human, that she had been in an accident, that she has to download her memories every week. I mean, these are all plot critical and yet there was no necessarily buildup to it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like analyzing it, I wish we could have seen some of that buildup over the course of the season. Now where it would have fit, I don't know, but you know, we've seen them be pretty good at building these characters, even if it wouldn't have fit a particular episode. Uh, just like if, if I could have anything different this season, I wish we could have had more characterization of that character during the season where we can actually see her relationship with Tilly instead of having to catch her in the background, eating food in the mess hall. Right. Which we saw last week. And this week we saw a memory of a girl's night out in the mess hall, which I loved that memory. I loved seeing them, with their metaphorical hair down and just bantering and having fun and laughing, especially characters who we don't often see in an unprofessional setting, like Ensign Detmer. We always see her at the helm and rarely anybody else. And here she is just goofing off. It was great. Yeah, talking about Catascot, which I was so happy because we saw that all the time in Voyager. Could you remind me what that is? Uh, it's a little game that we saw Neelix and Naomi Wildman playing a lot, or Seven of Nine and Naomi Wildman playing a lot on Voyager. Just a little game with little pieces on a stand-up angled board. Uh, apparently, well, it, it was kind of assumed that this was some kind of uh, Delta Quadrant game, because it was only ever seen on Voyager. 
But uh, no, it turns out it's something that's in the um, Alpha Quadrant, at least. And apparently it's been played for quite a while. <laughs> Even Tilly was like a regionals champion when she was 10 years old. I guess it's better that they're playing that than, say, Parisi Squares. Yeah, which is, you know, very dangerous. You can get tennis elbow from them. Oh, no. Heaven forbid. <laughs> How do you think the downloading the memory works every week? I mean, she is able to delete things that are not important. And when I first saw that, I thought that was whatever virus she was infected with clearing her memory out, which we do see later. But no, this is a weekly process for her. It's almost like a, a pen sieve from Harry Potter where you can download the stuff that you don't need or just delete it or archive it. I wonder how much she actually keeps in her head at any given time. Yeah, hard to say, but you know, I can understand the feeling because I have a 100 terabyte drive at my uh, Windows 10 is running off of and I have to clear it every now and then. <laughs> and so usually of uh, Overwatch things like, oh, there's that memory, I guess I can save that over to here. I can archive this to this place. So I guess I understand how she feels there. <laughs> 100 gigabytes? Yeah, 100 gigabytes, not terabytes. <laughs> I was going to say, oh my God, Sabriel, I would love to have your hard drive. Man, please, <laughs> please. Oh my gosh. So all these YouTube videos need to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I just save YouTube. I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, you just install a couple of petabytes and you should be all set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you run out of that, just upgrade to a zettabyte. Why not? <laughs> but it seems she's connected to the main computer or some some kind of personal storage device, I guess. I can only assume it's the main computer, but it could not be. It might not be. Yeah, there's some sort of compatibility between her memory systems and the computers. Kind of like in the TNG episode, The Schizoid Man, where Ira Graves downloaded all of his memories into the ship's computer, but not his consciousness. Somehow that interface exists in the Discovery era as well. Yeah, I also noticed in her bedroom, she does not have a bed. She had some kind of pod. Oh, she regenerates like Seven of Nine? I don't know that, which just has some kind of pod instead of a bed. Oh, I missed that. I'm sorry. Was it a like a standing pod? Like uh, a no, it's a laying down one that had a cover. Oh, okay. And inside, you could see a place for to put one's neck on, so if one was to lay down. Got it. So almost like a like like you'd find in an airport, like one of those little resting pods, almost. Yeah, or you know, like a vampire coffin. Oh, great. Maybe she's a <laughs> lich. <laughs> oh, clearly. No, but, uh, <laughs> Just in that first scene where we see her quarters, I felt like she was much more personable than we've seen her before. Talking about her memories, making jokes with Tilly, she was, in a way, much less robotic than we'd ever seen her before. Yeah, like I was saying, it was so unfortunate that this is the only time we really ever saw her personality and her actual character being themselves, so... I wish we could have gotten more of that over the course of the season, but hey, I'm glad we got to see it, and the way they did it... It still made me feel for her when things went south later on. Yeah, and I feel like as things began to go more and more south, Arium started to be aware that something was wrong with her. Like when she asked Tilly, stay by my side no matter what. I wish Arium had been more transparent with her concerns and had gone to somebody in authority and said, I'm losing time. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, it's it's possible that the thing was keeping her from doing it too uh, so she only can only say too, so much oh that's you know what that's a really good point she couldn't let on that she knew yeah because that thing was probably lurking in the background paying attention to everything she said and did and knowing right. when to intervene right like it's just a hypothesis but it seems to kind of make sense no i find that very logical and believable that makes a lot of sense you know we saw also the chief of security start to grow suspicious of Arium 
but not really do anything about it. There were several shots of her cowering in a corner as the ship was shaking, staring at Arium, but not taking action. And I yeah. wish that I wish that they had acknowledged her intelligence by empowering her to do something. Yeah, uh, Nan's her name. Uh, she came from Enterprise with Pike, and it felt odd that she didn't have. That maybe she did, but we did not see a scene of her discussing like her suspicions of this person. Especially, oh my god! Especially after the scene where she walks in, Anon walks in on Arium, looking at data from the big dead space ball, and uh, uh, Arium says in her mind control voice, "Like you're Barzan, your apparatus allows you to breathe." Is that correct or something like that? (laughs) It was extremely creepy. Right, just curious. <laughs> I mean, that was no different from Hugh of Borg looking at Jordy and saying, like, humans, sever the seventh vertebrae, death is instantaneous. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. No one thinks this is a little weird. <laughs> right. And also, we saw a new physical manifestation of when she was switching personalities, how her neck would crick as opposed to just the eyes flashing. I wonder if that was because the virus was taking more and more control or because that was i don't know they felt that the eyes flashing was too subtle for us to notice oh i don't think it was too subtle for us um but why that was happening i can't tell you i did like the little sound effect they always had when she turned her head had this little humming noise uh but why they did that though uh i guess i didn't i thought about it i don't see it as a hint to us maybe it was a hint to the characters in show because none of them were looking at her eyes apparently right yeah, I think if it was a hint to us, that would be insulting to our intelligence because they had already made it pretty clear the last two weeks what was going on. Yeah. One hypothesis you had that was correct was that the terabytes of information that she had been encoding and using Ash Tyler's encryption codes was data from the sphere. You were absolutely correct about that. I mean, to me, I mean, it felt like it's the only kind of thing we had a resource of. Like, we just got a whole bunch of numbers of data from them. So it seemed plausible. So yay, but I mean that one kind of seemed like yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and she was focusing specifically on data referring to artificial intelligence, which suggests to me that other civilizations have achieved artificial intelligence without it wiping out all sentient life in the universe. So I wonder what's different about what's happening in this episode. Or just the combination of a whole bunch of things, maybe making it work. It doesn't necessarily mean that it got that far, but with enough uh, TED talks. No, if, if you know, I'm just looking at enough data over across over the spectrum and just see how it evolves. I guess you can just have lots of different data points to build off of. That also makes sense. The sphere probably had the whole puzzle, whereas individual civilizations only had pieces. Yeah, and you know, obviously, the sphere thing did not actually watch Terminator Two. So, right, let's talk about helps. Control. You were <laughs> suspecting that Control was some sort of an AI, and again, Sabriel, you were correct. Uh, I mean. <laughs> the way it was going, it just kind of felt that way. But yeah, um, this feels really weird to me. Um, that they're like that Cornwell, who was like, "Yeah, we just plug in a bunch of data; it gives its suggestion, but we always make the decisions." Like this feels really weird. I felt <laughs> it made me feel very uncomfortable. It also reminded me of the M5 unit from TL. Yes. Yes, I was also thinking of the ultimate computer, which is just 10 years from now. Very similar. I feel like no one in Starfleet has seen the Terminator movies, which is really weird because everyone knows 20th century music. (laughs) But apparently they don't watch 20th century film. 
Right. There is a point of divergence between our timeline and the Star Trek timeline. For example, the eugenics war should have happened by now. But I think in the early 80s, when the first Terminator film came out, we should have that in common, at least. Well, see, things went differently because I don't think uh, the Star Trek universe had Star Trek in the 1960s. Oh, you know what? That's a very good point. They were stuck with a time tunnel and and things like that. <laughs> right. There was probably no Gene Roddenberry in their universe. Or if there was, he did different things. Now, this brings to mind the fantastic John Scalzi novel, Red Shirts, where they did have all those things in their past. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different podcast. But control is still the whole idea of it. really makes me uncomfortable. You're very observant about details, so let me know if I've overlooked something. Okay. What I remember is that the first time they referenced control in this season of Star Trek Discovery was at the very beginning of last week after they had their holographic discussion with the four admirals and when George Yu came out and said that she didn't trust AI and you and I talked about that. I don't remember control coming up prior to that. Did I miss something? Yeah, they did. And it was mentioned, actually, it was shown in the recap before the show started today. Ash Tyler mentioned control when talking to Pike about when he thought it was dangerous. They had a little conversation in the mess hall, like episode two or, th- or three or four. And he mentioned control. That's right. Okay. I do remember that now. You're correct. And th- th- you're right. That was in the recap as well. It's just something that similar to Arium, I feel like they could have been building up to it some more, building some scaffolding. Whereas we learned a lot about Arium and about control just in this one episode. And those two things culminated very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't really have much build up to that, which is a little weird. Because control is something used, it sounds like, by all of Starfleet, but it's headquartered at Section 31 specifically. Right, which there's no one at all that's at Section 31 are four admirals which is a little weird, or at least the head of it. And even Pike had said at one point that Section 31 is using technology that nobody in, Star- in Starfleet has seen. And I'm like, that's kind of the point. That's, sex- that's what Section 31 does. Why are you calling it out now? Yeah, uh, I guess maybe that was not a known at that point. Uh, maybe. But I mean, we've also seen their tractor beams, their communicators. Yeah, this yeah, is all that, new that's tech. That's also true. So he, like, he should be like, oh, maybe he was also alluding to that. Maybe, I guess. I don't know. It did feel a little weird. Like, you've seen this already. Maybe it was bad editing. Yeah, maybe he thought, oh, Admiral Cornwell knows about the communicator and the tractor beam, but she maybe doesn't know about the brain sifter? I don't know. It's weird. Speaking of brain things and Cornwell, oh my god, the opening of this ticked me off. It had a lie detector. And she was adamant that it is 100% accurate. And to see an admiral who... I really like believe in hogwash, such as lie detectors really annoyed me. But then I also was like, God, they had this in TOS so they can do it. <laughs> when was the lie detector in TOS? Oh, it was Harry Mudd's episode. There were, he was like, my name, something else. And the computer's like, incorrect or something like that. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. And this time they actually had, it wasn't a stress test like we have in the 21st century. It was a neural scanner. But that you're right. That scene, what I thought of when I saw that scene was... It's becoming harder and harder to believe that this show is set in Star Trek's past because the technology that they're displaying, I mean, Beverly Crusher's sick bay looks rudimentary <laughs> next to everything we've seen in Discovery. I, mean, I don't have a problem with, you know, like, too many production values or whatever like that being making the shows look much different. I was just annoyed that they had this tech that we know now is BS, let alone uh, uh, in there. But then... In the 60s, it's, when they made Star Trek, it seemed plausible that this was an accurate thing. So I don't know. Ugh, just annoyed me. 
annoyed me. <laughs> but then it also annoys me that they're plugging all this information to a computer and listening to it. Well, we don't know for sure how that neurological lie detector works, do we? Oh, no. But still, it just annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they figured out a way to make it work, but what was the way Harry Mudd called it? This tin-plated bot. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But maybe they found a way to make it work. Maybe I know it's funny. I can accept time travel. I can accept you know Klingons not having forehead ridges. But then they have to go to the lie detector, and I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> there was another lie that was detected in this episode, which was the holographic projection of Spock committing murder and the Vulcan Admiral. But both of these things were visual recordings. I don't understand how Saru could get a heat map out of that. Apparently, yeah, the, their uh, technology records every level of the scene, not just video. <laughs> and transmits it. Yeah, which is a little weird, but okay, I guess. I mean, uh, it's one of those things like in Star Trek universe, there are security cameras everywhere until the plot requires there not be any. And then it, it helps you forget that. Yeah, it's it's a little too convenient. Like, oh, Saru, you're able to see people's heat signatures when it's being transmitted. I don't know. I, I saw him perk up at something that the Admiral had said, and I knew that he was suspicious of something, but it seems unbelievable that that would be what he picked up on. And also that nobody else had noticed this thing about the recording of Spock committing murder. Nobody thought, hey, let's look at every visual layer of this recording. Like, no, if you're suspecting somebody of murder, you're going to be exhaustive with the evidence, not give it a cursory glance and say, yup, looks like him. Oh, they tried to cover it up because Corbin was like, well, I looked at the data codes or the source codes, uh, the, the plural, the source codes, and this is 100% authentic. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I saw. I heard that plural too. I'm like, source codes? What? <laughs> she almost knows that she's making up this techno babble. She's like, that's what I said, and I'm an admiral, so just believe it. <laughs> she's slowly turning into a bad admiral. Oh, I've never oh. heard that phrase, and I don't oh. like it. Uh. <laughs> uh, Star Trek's full of them. This episode also showed tons more, or not tons more, but a bit more anti-holographic talk between this and Pike was, I can't remember, Pike made some kind of comment too earlier. I was like, oh man, yeah, this whole season, he's like, I don't want this holographic technology. And here they're showing more anti-holographic talk with showing that the control faked this stuff. Interesting. But it was also very pro-cybernetics. Yeah, yeah. I really like how Arium and Detmer bonded over that. We saw Detmer not <laughs> at her station just saying, yay, plus one for cybernetics, yeah. yay. I, I love their little teasing and playing around. It was so much fun. And even when they called Arium a robot, she was like, excuse me, half robot. <laughs> Tilly says uh, robot the same way I prefer to say it. Robot. Uh, I think it's just fun to say robot. <laughs> R-O-B-U-T. Well, it's spelled the same, but it sounds like that, yes. Or, <laughs> or with an I, robot. Yeah, I prefer pronouncing it R-O-B-O-T, but mm -hmm. I definitely heard them say the alternative. And I was like, hmm, that's something I don't hear I every day. I think she said it ironically, just for fun. I, I, I like saying Spider-Man and the Batman, but just because I think it's funny. <laughs> well, if you're talking about the new animated movie, there are Spider-Man. No, nah, but I'm not, that's not what I mean. I've just seen Spider-Man, <laughs> the Batman, the Superman. <laughs> okay. I, I think now you're just being purposely antagonistic. Uh, well, I'm not sure what you said because our recorder broke up, but I think you were just calling me awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is definitely the A word I was using. <laughs> um, I, I also got a kick out of Cornwell and Pike's interactions on the bridge. Yeah, I like that. Tell us about it. Uh, well, when they're going to fly to control, Pike is asking Cornell, he's like, do you want to tell us what kind of shitstorm we're heading into? 
Yeah, I definitely, I definitely noticed them being fast and loose with the language on this episode. I, oh, I laughed so hard. But then they had discussion when they got there. Like, wait, there's mines, and like the Federation. He's like, the Federation doesn't do mines, and she's like, yeah, there was a war. We didn't build them. And he's like, I don't think that's a distinction we should make. And why didn't you want me out here? Did you send the Enterprise away because because I keep calling you on your BS? And she's like, no, we wanted you out there because we wanted the best of Starfleet to survive if we lost to the Klingons. As this conversation makes clear, that was you and all you represent. <laughs> and then he sheepishly, sheepishly is like, thank you. <laughs> I really like that she was acknowledging that, yes, you have ideals and principles and you stick to them even when I don't. And that makes you better than me. I really like that she acknowledged that. And then she says, now, will you stop riding my ass so we can get to work? <laughs> I love that scene so much. And the whole bridge crew is like smirking and giggling. <laughs> Yeah, I love the reaction shots that they do on Discovery. It's great. Yeah, that was just before they go into that mine scene. When she said that we didn't build them, do you think she meant that they were built by Section 31 or they were repurposed from the Klingons? Well, the sense I got was just some alien race they bought them from, I'm guessing. Uh, Who they got them from, uh, that didn't give me any indication who it could have been. Oh, interesting. Because I think this is the first time we've seen mines since the... uh... Like season six finale of Deep Space Nine, I think. Uh, it was on Enterprise. They had a Romulan minefield, and Deep Space Nine right. had the self-replicating minefield. Right. The latter is what I'm referring to. You're right about the Romulans. I forgot about that one. That was the only time that they had any communication directly with the Romulans, and it was verbal only. Yeah. That's right. The Romulan Star Empire. Yeah, what did you think of that whole scene where they were trying to navigate a literal minefield? That was a lot of fun. Jeez, um, they had like... The, the best kind of mines are just saw blades, basically, in the space chasing after the ship. Yeah, it seems like something I would see in the horror movie Cube or something. Right? Uh, and and there, I mean, there are some weird things. Like, Detmer seemed oddly out of place, even though, like, we've seen her be a really good pilot and talk about how great of a pilot she is. And all of a sudden, she's like, oh, I can't control things. Or the controls won't respond. Just, and Cornwell had to tell her, yeah, they are. Just keep doing your thing. And she's like, okay, I'll keep doing my thing. Uh, that was a little weird because like, we just saw her bragging about how good of a pilot she is. But hey, whatever. I still thought the traveling was fun. And their introduction of chaos to their navigation didn't really seem to help. They were still getting pelted by those mines. <laughs> Actually, it was helping until um, Cornwell gave a command and then it got hit by like five mines. <laughs> Whoops. Thanks, Admiral. Yeah, bad Admiral. Uh, and one was like, going right for the shuttle bay that's always open. Oh, dear. I didn't notice that. <laughs> Obvious weak point. I found it very tense. On one hand, I felt like there wasn't enough variety because no matter what they did, as I felt, they just kept getting hit by the mines. But I also, the last time we saw things physical hitting a Starfleet vessel, so not phasers or explosions or anything, I was very much reminded of Star Trek Beyond at the very beginning where they have that swarm Mm -hmm. that literally tears the Enterprise apart. And I felt like I was living through that again. And I did not want to see that happen at Discovery, nor did I think it would because we're mid-season, but it was much more visceral than a phaser fight. Yeah, for sure. And oh my God, like in Beyond, I just like was gutted seeing Enterprise go through that here. It didn't feel like I, I don't think it was just because it was an episode. I didn't feel like the Enterprise was in, was it, or excuse me, Discovery was in serious danger, maybe mild danger. I just didn't feel it, but it was still fun. Right. Yeah. They they had their warp drive taken offline, and that seemed to be very intentional. They wanted them to be just sitting ducks, and so I don't know if they were actually were in danger. 
However, I don't think it was until Arium sent that coded message that the mine stopped attacking. So it seems like they did want to destroy the ship until they realized Arium was on it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how much the AI was like. Oh, Arium has more information. I don't know. It, it did. So this this part, the whole space station part, did feel a little bit weird to me. Like they missed some things when when uh, producing the final episode. Like uh, suddenly they couldn't beam away when they could beam onto it. And the hypothesis was like, well, control just let them do what they needed to do, like get Arium onto the station. That occurred to me as well. And usually we hear some sort of a line like, beam them back. I can't, sir. There's too much interference. And that's all you need to excuse that. But I, I do like that theory that Control wanted them on the ship. Uh, Control wanted them on the station. And that was made clear. So maybe Control somehow stopped them from leaving as well. Yeah, and I honestly was waiting for the line. Like, I can't bring them back, sir. Because I kept thinking, why don't you just beam them back? <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it's... It feels like they just missed a line or something like that, or they just assumed we would assume that. Maybe they thought we were, maybe they gave us too much, and we're just too used to being hand-fed this information. Or maybe it didn't occur to them to beam back. They're like, "Oh, we forgot about the transporters! Oh, Damn it!" <laughs> so much technology, we just lost inventory. Oh well. <laughs> when Arian went full-on Terminator, she was very difficult to take down. Not only was she throwing some gut-wrenching punches, but she also took several point-blank rifle blasts and just kept on going yeah uh, well she took a good one and then she just kept dodging like point blank like how does how what <laughs> yeah but once michael got her footing yeah. back under her that's when she started pummeling her with some f- phaser fire yeah and then nope that's okay that's cool <laughs> like oh this seems like a very big flaw in your cybernetics a good flaw i guess depends i guess you're not expecting to fight your own people Right. <laughs> and then they had that heart-wrenching conversation through the door. Yeah, Michael has this like, huge moment after having some discussions in our B-plot with Spock. And she's having a hard time here because Ariam's like, you need to put me in space and kill me. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing bad things. And Michael is having so much trouble with this. That was, that was hard. That was a rough soul scene. Oh. Yeah, I... <sighs> I mean, once they finally do jettison her and you see everybody on the bridge, even Cornwell is upset and Detmer is crying because they were all friends. I'm glad that ultimately it wasn't Burnham who pulled the lever because she would live with that guilt for the rest of her life. I'm glad that they found somebody else to do it for her. Uh, yeah, which was also another weird thing because we saw Arium rip off Nan's um, breathing apparatus and then like, everyone seemed to just forget Nan existed. And I'm like, she's right there. Why are we not focusing on her? Why is no one making any comment towards her? And all of a sudden, she's the one who jettisons Arium, which is another weird editing thing this episode. I thought it worked well. I, To be honest, I had kind of forgotten about her. And when Arium was jettisoned, I was like, wait, did Michael do that? Who did that? Uh, for me, I like not one bit. I like, Oh, yeah, she's still around. We didn't actually see her die. So <laughs> <laughs> I found her conversation with Tilly just, just be so sad because Arium seemed to be in control of her of her voice, but not much else. She basically said to Michael, if this door opens, I will kill you. You need to jettison me. So there was clearly a war being waged inside her and she knew what she needed to do. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was rough. Oh. And her voice, she was not calm about this. She was pleading. She was nearly in tears. And that's what made it so hard for us. I rarely see or hear that kind of desperation on Star Trek. No, you're right. Um, this is one of the few episodes that actually, you know, kind of got me crying. 
uh, it was very, very powerful, emotional, and emotional. Yeah, I won't say it made me cry, literally, but I tweeted right after the episode was done, I need a hug. And mm-hmm. other people liked that tweet and replied and like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Aaron's mission on that station because she was trying to upload all the information about AI, which she had downloaded from the Sphere. The only reason she did that is because she was infected by a probe from 500 years in the future. So this seems like some sort of a causality loop where she's being directed by a machine from the future to build the machines that in the future will destroy all of humanity. Yeah, it's a little weird that this thing keeps downloading information from like the shuttlecraft and from things that it should have access to already 500 years from now. Uh, It's a little weird, but maybe, maybe... It does a little back to the future thing where that timeline was missing some crucial information because something happened where Discovery didn't get there. And so it's been trying to get Arian back so it can make sure it has the information. It was a little weird. And I'm wondering if we're going to get some more answers that fix that loop in the coming weeks. Or maybe it is a causality loop like Terminator, where it was the Terminator going back in the first movie and leaving parts behind that allowed Cyberdyne to invent Skynet in the first place. Maybe, and wait, I wrote down a note that might have an answer here that we don't know how it's going to work out yet. Because in that scene where Arium was pleading for Michael to kill her, uh, Arium said, it's meaning control, wanted me to kill you. Everything is because of you. Yeah, yeah, which is in sharp contrast to the lesson she was being taught by Spock, which we will talk about soon as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that means. And then Arium also said, you need to find Project Daedalus, which is the first time we've seen or heard that name in Discovery, even though it was the name of this episode. Yeah, Daedalus was a um, Greek person or god. He was Icarus's father. Yeah, and he was an inventor. Yeah, he had three kids. So what was it? Icarus, he helped build him the wings so he can get out of the labyrinth. And Icarus... Flew too close to the sun. And the wax on the wings melted and he crashed into the ocean and died. And Daedalus always blamed himself for being the cause of his son's death, basically. Yeah. And then another son was an inventor and he pushed him off the edge of a cliff. I can't remember why. And then the other one, I'm drawing a blank now. My Greek mythology is a little rusty. But Daedalus was some kind of inventor. I'm wondering if Daedalus is another name for control or some... Or the AI or some project that was supposed to improve the AI and now it's going amok in time. Ha ha ha. Oh <laughs> gosh, amok time. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. I see what you did there. <laughs> but I'm trying to make a connection of what Daedalus could mean. And I'm wondering if it has to do with inventing, building things, uh, making itself better. I think it's some sort of a project to invent something that will surpass its inventor. So create a machine that will be better than people. And that would possibly tie into our discoveries hovering above a star a thousand years in the future. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I was also wondering if the Red Angel, now that we know it's human and now that we know Arium is human, if there's some connection there as well. Uh, yeah, it's... Well, Arium's gone, so I don't think that means the Red Angel is Arium. I wonder if Arium is gone. I mean, we didn't. We did actually see her die, so I think that's a good. <laughs> In Star Trek, usually that means uh, they're dead. But we've never seen somebody like Arium, who's a half robot. Oh, no. I mean, we threw we threw lore into space, and he floated for ages. He was he had no human parts at all, or actual uh, biological parts. That's true. He was not a cyborg. Yeah. But I'm just saying that we see people disappear 
and they have robotic parts and then they come back and who knows. I'm wondering if there's something where the crew of Discovery has to leave the ship over the star for time travel reasons. Like we'll come back and get the ship. We have to go uh, use this other means to get to our ship in a thousand years. Uh, so we'll time travel there. Like kind of like, like how in Star Trek or excuse me, Back to the Future Three, left the DeLorean in the cave so they can come get it later. Right. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's some kind of shenanigans here where they go, to, they leave the discovery behind because they're going to go grab it again in a thousand years and then take it and go back in time and do things with it. Uh, <laughs> kind of like Dragon Riders of Pern. I have not seen that. Uh, you're not missing too much, okay. but uh, it also reminds me of a couple of other things. One being in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure where they say, oh, you know what? When we're in the future, we'll come back to the past and we'll hide this key right here. And here it is, <laughs> you know, even though we haven't seen them do it yet. And also reminds me of this DC 1 million storyline that they did in DC Comics, where these two characters are separated by a million months. One is in the past, one is in the future. And the one in the past is like, I need to get back to the future and save my friends who are in trouble. And then he realized, wait a minute, I don't need to time travel. I just need to be really patient and wait. And so he waits a million months and then he's like, here I am. <laughs> so maybe some combination of those discovery is going to be like, you know what? In this timeline, yeah, we're all going to die. But by leaving the ship here, we'll empower somebody to go back from the future to the past and save us. So again, some sort of a causality loop. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. However, in that future from the short treks, humanity does exist. So whatever this timeline is where robots wipe everything out must not have happened or must not have happened yet. Or the Dreyesh, maybe some, maybe they weren't entirely wiped out, much like humans weren't entirely wiped out by the Zindi. Oh, that's true. We're just little pockets of humanity living throughout space. Yeah. It does make me wonder where the next episode is going to start because they're still hanging out just outside Section 31 headquarters. If control is a piece of hardware that is limited to a single space, then they're now camped out in its front yard and they can probably go investigate it further. Yeah, uh, this episode seemed to take place a few weeks after the last one because the admirals, the frozen admirals we saw uh, were talking to us or we were seen talking like two weeks or last week's episode. And so it seemed like some time had gotten to here. So that was interesting to me. And then, yeah, next episode, where are they going to take off? We don't know that those admirals weren't holograms, though. Uh, I mean, I guess that's true. So anything else to say about the Arium Control storyline before we briefly cover the Burnham Spock storyline? Uh, I've got nothing more in my notes. Nope. All right. So we saw quite a few brother-sister interactions here. What was your reaction to that? Or what part really stuck out to you? Well, actually, the part that stuck out to me was seeing... Two people that previously had been shown to be acting like jerks in Stamets and Spock getting a scene being jerks to each other, but also wholesome to, to each other. That was the part that stood out to me. Yeah, they're both really hurting. And I think that they have no reason to hate each other. So they were able to bridge that gap that way. Yeah. But um, Spock and Burnham, like, I feel something there, but I don't think I'm feeling as strong as I'm supposed to about their relationship to each other. And I'm not sure if that is because I'm an only child or because of something in the show is just not clicking for me. I could see why they are upset with each other. I can understand it, but I don't know if maybe I'm missing something because I'm an only child. Oh, that's an interesting theory because I have three older brothers and this 
scene with with them playing chess had me holding my breath because that sort of sibling contention is very real and very unnerving. I could sense that, but I was also just kind of like, okay, I understand. Yep, you're mad. You're angry. You're just feeling things for the first time in a while. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Why do you think he's feeling things? He said that failure is liberating, and for the first time in his life, he's enjoying expressing emotion. Why... Do you think that is because logic has failed him and so emotion is all he has? Uh, well, we literally saw log- logic fail him and it feels like he's finally letting himself go Or f- after the events of Talos 4 here last week. Um, yeah, he's finally allowing himself to feel. He's been struggling with this half-human, half-Vulcan thing for all his life. And uh, now he's finally letting himself go and showing emotions. Like, yeah, of course it's going to feel good. And actually, he's playing part of his identity that he hasn't really been allowed to. Is that to his benefit, though? I mean, yes, he's getting in touch with his human half, but we know this is not where the character ends up because we see him in TOS. And I I wonder what is going to root him and ground him again? And what good is expressing all this emotion doing for him in the meantime, other than alienating his sister, not by blood? Oh, my God. That was was a, ooh, ouch, (laughs) moment when he said that to her about uh, her. I don't know if I had, if I had been his sister, I would have just been like, clearly we're not related by blood because I'm human and you're Vulcan. Why does that even need to be said? Duh. Uh, he was just trying to bite her, get her, get under her skin. Yeah. Like but. some other things he said about how she couldn't save her parents and yet she wanted to. She was a child hiding behind a door. There was nothing she could do, and she couldn't stop the Klingon War and how she takes on all this burden. He may have been saying those things to hurt her, as could be clearly indicated by the tone of his voice, but it was also things that I could imagine a therapist saying to her, like, Michael, you take on a lot of burden. You try to fix everything, even the things you're not responsible for, and it's holding you back, and you need to learn to let go. I mean, when put that way, these things are true and helpful and things that she is struggling with and needs to learn to overcome. And so I can't help but wonder on some level if Spock was not just attacking her, but also trying to help her. Oh, in that moment, I didn't feel it was a personal attack. I I mean, to me, that's just how I felt. I felt it was just the rage, you know, in the heat of the moment, yelling, but saying these truths. Uh, Like, you take on too much responsibility. Yes, of course. You don't think he was angry with her at that moment? I didn't say he was angry. I just don't think he was trying to get under her skin, uh, you had mentioned, but... uh... So what was his point in saying those things? To tell her that you are wrong and to tell her you are full of crap. I didn't think it was trying to intentionally make her mad. I just felt like it, to me, it felt like he was just trying in an angry voice because they were already yelling like these are your problems. You are not, you are too self-important. You're full, or was it? You are too full of self-importance. I don't think he was actually trying to make her mad and telling her that. It's just an observation, as some people would say. Yeah. It may have made her mad, but I didn't think it was supposed to make her mad. My definition of brutality is honesty without compassion. And mm-hmm. I, I would definitely say that that fit Spock in that moment. Yeah, I agree. Do we have anything else to say about Spock and Burnham? Well, he also told her the truth. That like you were wrong when you were a child. The log- logic extremists weren't after you. They were after me. Oh, yeah. The abomination. Yeah. We also saw that we have a logic extremist made it to being a bad moral. Yeah. That was surprising. I don't, I don't know how she didn't get weeded out sooner. Not because of a stereotype about Vulcans and logic, but just because logic to that degree is not what Starfleet needs. 
no, no. And so she got pretty far. Huh. And then she got frozen and killed. <laughs> and then used oh. her image. Uh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this whole episode, there were three scenes that just had me holding my breath. There was the chess game in the room, which I loved seeing uh, them bring back that classic Star Trek artifact. But the sibling shouting was unnerving. Then there was the scene in the minefield where, oh my gosh, we don't know if they're going to be able to escape. And this is a very visceral, as I said, experience. And then there was, of course, the battle with Arium and the tearjerker conversation just before she basically allowed herself to be killed. This was a really emotionally dense episode. Yeah, it was. It was also our second episode this season run by Jonathan Frakes. Yes. You know what? I watch the opening credits every week and there were no special guest stars listed, which A, I'm glad for because I feel like that's a spoiler. But B, <laughs> it was a spoiler because I knew right off the top, okay, Ash Tyler's not in this episode. Emperor George U is not in this episode. But then also, as you said, we saw Jonathan Frakes and he is just a master of directing Star Trek. I love everything he does, including this episode. Oh, and oh, yeah. Well, he did the Klingon episode and we were kind of like, huh. At the time. I don't remember disliking anything Jonathan Frakes has ever done. I disliked it. We were both, huh. <laughs> Everybody has an off day. Yes. Uh, um, oh, you made up a good point there. There was no Ash Tyler in this episode, and I was happy. <laughs> None of that whininess that you've grown to hate so much. Yep, yep. But presumably now they know that he wasn't the one who sabotaged the spore drive. Yeah, unfortunately, they're going to let him out of his, house, or his quarters. <laughs> but you know, they were using the spore drive last week. And this brings to mind our theory that every time they travel through the mycelial network, they were damaging it. And Stamets, you remember, he said, I knew better, I know better, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And yet they're still using it. So I wonder if they actually were damaging it. Well, they didn't get to use it last week. They tried and it was, uh, Arium had blocked it, but they were repairing it here. And that made me question that too. It was like, why are you talking about wanting to keep using this when you've already found out? Like, recently in showtime that it's hurting the mycelial network or maybe we misunderstood and it's not hurting it i don't know but there are definitely people who live there yeah and so no that, that felt that did feel a little weird to me too but it did let us get some great scenes between stamets and spock that i loved yeah although another special guest not appearing in this episode was wilson cruz so we didn't actually see culber which is fine because i was just saying last week that he needs more space and so we i think we gave it to him this week yeah uh again i can't wait for uh starfleet to invent psychologists and psychiatrists isn't admiral cornwell a psychologist uh that's right she is but <laughs> something this ship desperately needs right now <laughs> right no no argument here well, I think that's it for this week of Transporter Lock. Anything we overlooked? Uh, no, I just can't wait to see what happens next week. The week after that, you and I will actually be watching Star Trek together in person. Huzzah! For the first time in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so looking forward to it. I'm not a talker. <laughs> <laughs> well, Captain, I will chat with you again in a week and then see you a week after that. Until then. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.
Another hypothesis you had was that the data she had been sending, which we knew was gigabytes of data, if not terabytes, I forget exactly, was, oh, it was terabytes. <laughs> I start over. I'm getting hung up on details. 